Well, good morning, everyone. All right. Yeah, it's one of those mornings. I know. I know. It's cold. It's snowing. See, lots of families are away for the holiday season. Somebody likes snow. That's good. One person. No, just kidding. Um, we're taking a break from the book of Isaiah. We do expository preaching going through books of the Bible. We're in Isaiah. We're taking a break. Uh, we finished up chapter 39 last week, which is the first major section of the book of Isaiah, uh, the gospel according to Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, and we'll jump in after the season. We'll pick up where we left off and then probably take another break and do one, a New Testament book and then finish up Isaiah sometime 2029. But... Um, <laughs> So our series this morning is called Christ in the Carols. We obviously are not going to expound on a song. We're a church that expounds on on expositions of of the Word of God. We're formed by the Word of God, but we are, for the next few weeks, looking into the Word of God That's for these truths that we sing about during the Christmas season, these wonderful stories and, and, and really poems of the glorious redemption of Christ in the scriptures. And our hope is that as we sing these songs, we're going to sing the song after the sermon, uh, as we sing these songs this year and the years to come, um, it, it, we'll get a greater understanding of what the scriptures teach about the first advent of Christ. That it will deepen our praise, it will deepen our appreciation and petitions as we sing to Christ through these beautiful poetries, through this beautiful poetry, these songs, uh, these beloved carols that we love to sing. So that's, that's our hope, Christ in the carols. Um, our first carol that we're going to sing uh, goes alongside with the, our scripture reading is on the theme of hope. It is called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. That's the first song. Uh, next week will be Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But this week... The long-expected Jesus. Actually, it's, it's an appropriate song uh, because it, now it doesn't really speak of the nativity scene per se, but it speaks of the promise of the nativity scene, the hope of humanity, the longing of the heart to be rescued from sin, from the curse of sin and the brokenness of mankind. The hope really, this song really is a reflection. I mean, it's, it's good for us, but... The Old Testament saints, as they were looking in hope of the, of, the, of the coming of the Messiah, that's really what this song is all about, the first advent, this hope that was given to Israel, given to the Jewish people as far back as Genesis 3. But before we look at the scriptures and this song, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the song, okay? So, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was written by Charles Wesley. Many of you probably, I'm sure, heard of him. One of the first few songs, hymns that he ever wrote. His brother John Wesley um, was the, uh, the, the head or the, the founder of the Methodist movement. In fact, Charles and John, these songs were written, helped move that movement right along. The song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, was written. Anybody want to take a guess? How much? 1744. 1744. <laughs> published, uh, written in 1744, published in 1745, uh, on December 17th, just in time for Christmas, in a, in a booklet or, or a collection of hymns called Hymns of the Nativity of Our Lord. And Charles Wesley, from what I read this week, was inspired to write this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, as he meditated on Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. It's anticipation of the coming of Christ. I also understand that 
Charles Wesley wrote this song not only as he inspired by Malachi, but he was looking around in Great Britain and he saw this, this great divide that was going on, this class divide, and the orphans, and he wrote this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, this, this hope of mankind. So before we get into the scripture, let's look at the song if we can. Now, the song was written in 1744, published 1745, with two stanzas. That, those are them right here. So, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. And uh, the stanza number two, born thy people to deliver. Born a child, yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy glorious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. And I think the key verse, uh, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Now, since that hymn was written, there have been added verses or added stanzas to the, to the song. Um, but the one we do here at King's Chapel was written by Ben Slee. Um, and that third stanza says this. Born to die for, you could see the, see the match for the song, obviously. Born to die for lowly sinners, bruised to crush the serpent's curse. Raised to life to heal the nation, raised to grant our spirit's birth. Come, thou shining, righteous Savior. Come, make heaven, earth anew. Come to claim your saints forever, forever, evermore to live in you. Okay, that's the song. Now, as I, as, I, as I read that song and I think about the scriptures and the word of God, of course, we're not, again, not expositing the song. But from where he gets these songs, where he gets this song, this hymn, from the word of God, I, I pulled out three themes. All right, I pulled out three things. You know, I figure I'm a preacher, i got to have three points. So uh, there's three themes. Really six, but I made it three, so for you it would be easier. Um, the, <laughs> the expectation and hope of Advent, the mission and deliverance of Christ, and finally, the consummation and eternity of the kingdom, okay? That's where we're headed. That's the themes I see in this song from the scripture. So number one, the expectation, hope of Advent. It is, for us today, it is really hard, probably impossible, to express the messianic expectation of the Jewish people as we sit here today in Glenmont. It is something that they hoped and they waited for and hoped in for thousands of years. In fact, as we said, the entire Old Testament points to the coming of this messianic king whose name is Jesus, the first advent. Luke tells us that in the gospel account of Luke at the end of the, of the narrative in Luke 24, as you know, Jesus is walking, he's raised from the dead, he's walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus, these two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up in, on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples, and he walks up to his disciples, these disciples, and he says, hey, they're talking together. And he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they turn to Jesus, and they say, really, you don't know? And they start explaining to Jesus about Jesus. You know, that? like, they're telling Jesus what happened to Jesus. And, 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 and the Lord turns to them and says in chapter 24, Oh, foolish ones, because they're trying to figure out what's going on, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer, the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses, that's the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this great redemptive story, this promise of God given to us really beginning in Genesis. We heard that in our scripture reading. And we read in Genesis that God, a good creative God that he is, creates man and Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground. And in his image, he creates them in his image and likeness with value, with dignity and worth. God then delegates to them, Adam and Eve, the stewardship and oversight of all creation for the purpose of reflecting his glory to the world. God allowed them great freedom. And he said, but there's one thing, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, our first parents disobeyed God. They sinned against God and then they ran from him. You can read that in Genesis first few chapters. They chose to sin, walk away from that relationship with him. And ever since that day, we ourselves find ourselves naturally born, separated from God, and perpetually living in sin, doing by choice what God told us not to do. But the good news is, in Genesis 3, we see that rather than leave Adam and Eve in their condition, rather than leave them in their fallen, sinful condition, helpless condition, God pursues them as he pursues us. And he gives them a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, first he says to the uh, the serpent, he says, the Lord said to the serpent, God is going to pronounce judgment. He says, because you have done this, you've tempted Adam and Eve, you drew them away from them. Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. And then in the midst of this brokenness, in this unraveling, in this entrance of sin into the world, God makes a promise. And he says, I will, not I might, I'm thinking about it, maybe I can get it done. No, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The promise that God is making in Genesis 3, the first proto-evangelium, the first gospel, is that someone is going to come from her offspring, And there'll be a battle between this male son from the offspring and the serpent Satan. And that this savior, this deliverer will be wounded. His heel will be wounded. But Satan will be ultimately be defeated by the crushing deadly head blow. And from that point on, you got to understand the Jewish people are looking and waiting, eagerly expecting and anticipating this son to come. This particular son that was given to the people of God. And then God calls Abraham, you know, he calls him out of the land, a a pagan land. And and he says, come and follow me. And he gives him a promise in Genesis 12 that from you, from your offspring, Abraham, starting from Genesis 3, now he's in Genesis 12, from your offspring, you are going to have a son and he is going to bless all the nations. That's why Wesley says in in this song that Christ is the dear desire of every nation. Not just the Jewish people. All people, all tongues, all tribes. And as God's redemptive history and this this pointing to the Savior continues, we find the people of God, Abraham's offspring, in Egypt in slavery. You know the story. 400 years. And God's people cry out while they're in slavery. And God hears their cry. And, and, And they're waiting for someone to come to rescue them from this slavery. And God raises up Moses, a leader, a prophet. To lead the Hebrews, the Jewish people, out of the promised land. And after they're redeemed and they're saved and they're rescued from slavery, God comes to them and makes a covenant with them through giving of the law. 
And the law served as this binding agreement between God and his people. And the requirements of the law in which God laid out was really designed to set the Israelites apart from the rest of the world. You're mine. I've chosen you. My grace has been upon you, is upon you. I'm going to lead you and protect you and provide for you a way to live righteously before me. Remember, always remember, God's redemption was first. The law was second. You can't get saved by following the law. And yet the law teaches us what? That we need a Savior. The law shows us that we have sinned. The law shows us and shows them that we turn away from God. We have a, a propensity to, to, to lapse into idolatry and sin. And even in the promised land, God gives them this sacrificial system pointing to the fact that they need a Savior. They need atonement. And you know the story? As Israel is settled in the promised land, they want a king. We want a king. And God says, you don't want a king. I'm your king. No, we want a king. He's like, okay. And he obliged to them and he lets them choose a king. Go ahead. And God provides Saul. We did Samuel not too long ago. And things don't go well with Saul. So God raises up King David, man after God's own heart. With David, God comes to him and keeping this promise, his expectation of the Savior, God comes to David and God gives him a promise. God gives him a promise. It's a sign. It's a covenant. That there'll be an eternal king. An establishing a righteous kingdom with an eternal king. Who will redeem, redeem, renew, and restore his shalom. The peace from Genesis. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. I know I only got verse 16 up there. But verse 12 says this. When your days are fulfilled, King David. And you lie down with your fathers, King David. I will raise up. Your offspring after you. There's that sign. There's that son. Excuse me. There's that offspring. And he shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16. And your house, David, your lineage, that offspring, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Not just a king. Not just someone coming from you, but there's going to be coming an offspring from you, King David. The one promised in Genesis, the one I told about Abraham, coming from you, David, that will reign and rule, have eternal attributes, and have an eternal kingdom. And the Jewish people are waiting for this son. Matthew 1.1 opens up the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The expected one that we have been eagerly awaiting is here. Our study of Isaiah, you know, It says that this child, that the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice, righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, family, there's this, all this means that there is a a deep breath of history which, which waited in eager expectation for God to come in the flesh to break into human history. And faithful Jews were waiting for this Messiah. It governed everything they did, all that they said, all their festivals, all their celebrations. There's this really overwhelming sense of an eager hope that the glory of God would come. He will come. He will manifest himself. He will break into history. And this was a constant, constant drum roll in the life of the Jewish people. They prayed about it. They, they were consistently looking for. In Luke chapter 2, there's a man named Simeon. Man of faith. It says in chapter 2, verse 5, that this man of faith, whose name was Simeon, 
was righteous and devout, devout, excuse me, waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And then when Jesus is brought into the temple, this baby Jesus, Simeon sees him and knows that this is the child that was promised to him that he would be able to see before he dies, that he is the messianic hope. And, and the Bible says this in chapter 2 of Luke, verse 29. He, he sees this consolation of Israel, this strength of Israel, and, and Simeon cries out this in prayer. Lord, now you are letting your servant Depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke says that Simeon was promised by the Holy Spirit that he'll see that son, and he does, and his name is Jesus. And that's Charles Wesley's borrowing from this passage, describes Jesus as Israel's strength and consolation. That's where it comes from. Israel's strength and consolation. Come, thou long expected Jesus. You are Israel's strength and consolation. You are the hope anticipated, the song says, of all the earth thou art. And you are the dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. When Jesus was born, we know the story also in Luke 2. Shepherds are in the field watching their flock. And the angel comes and says to them, fear not. When the angel shows up, there's fear. You don't know what he's doing. He says, fear not. Why? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. There's that connection again. A Savior who is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. Family, Jesus is the joyful answer to the heart longing for reconciliation. Heart longing for reconciliation with God. Longing to have peace with God. Longing for communion with God. Longing to be restored to God and with God. The expectation and hope of Advent. Next we see the mission. Just a few lines again. um, The song. I'll have it up in a minute, but let me just read it to you again. Because you don't have a hymnal. If you had hymnals, we would just have you open that up, but... Keep your Bibles open. It'd be better. Anyway, Wesley song. Born to set thy people free. Free from fears and sins release us. You know this song. Let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child, yet a king. Charles Wesley is announcing what scripture has been saying over and over again. That Jesus the Messiah is the Redeemer. He is the Deliverer. He has come to buy his children, his people back, buy them back from their bondage. And so his mission is Redeemer and that of a Deliverer. Look what the, the song says. Set his people free. Deliverer, freedom, bondage, set free from our sins and fears. Jesus the Messiah came to deliver, to release from bondage, from our sins, from our misery, slavery, and for the dread of God's judgment. Now, freedom. We love our freedoms. We should. Freedom is important. Freedom is, is, is close to the heart of every American. It's a privilege. Privilege we enjoy. 
But sometimes even privilege, I think all can, you can, if you've got children, you know this. Sometimes even privileges can go with wayward and have, promote wrong behaviors. Patriotism is, and love for our country is biblical, as we should. We should be good citizens while we're here on earth. But our citizenship and the freedoms we have in this country are to promote love of God and love of others. So we hold our freedoms, freedom of assembly, a vote, freedom from oppression. But if we're honest, if we're honest, sometimes we take our freedoms a little bit too far because we just want to do whatever we want to do. It's not meant for believers. Our freedom is not meant to live selfishly or to do whenever and whatever and with whomever we please. That's not what our freedoms are as believers in Christ. True freedom, John Stott says, is freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and love for others. That's a great quote. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, that has nothing to do with being American. What Jesus is saying is that everyone is a slave to sin because who among us can say we are without sin? We sin because we're sinners. There's a power within us. It's not just bad behavior. There's something in our hearts that causes us and to seek, to love, to worship, and to seek value and worth in created things, not in the creator God. And some of you may be here and say, you know what, whoa, 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 I was talking about slavery. I, I, I'm not enslaved to anything. I think sometimes we think that way because we think, or you might be thinking, slavery has to come with those people that are, you know, strung out on drugs or alcohol or pornography. But let me ask you, do you worry a lot? Is greed an issue for you? You don't have to answer the question. Do you lose your temper often? Do you hold grudges? Do you find yourself doing things repeatedly that you know you shouldn't be doing? Slavery. Power within us. There are things that we can, and you might be saying, well, I used to do this and I don't do it anymore. Well, that's maybe true. But the real issue is the power of sin and the enslavement of sin that's in and every one of us in our hearts. That slavery is deep. That's what Jesus is talking about. Sin enslaves us by producing compelling desires and self-centered will. Sin enslaves us by making uh, anything look more desirable than Jesus. That's what sin is. Something uh, that we see and that we want and we desire more than Jesus. And unless someone intervenes on our behalf, it will condemn us. The problem that we have this morning, I don't know if I'm speaking to you or not, is that sometimes we find ourselves in this slavery. We want nothing to do with Jesus, but everything seems to be right for you today. But the problem is you don't see the destruction that's coming down your way. This is where the famous words of a famous theologian comes in handy. His name is Bob Dylan. You know the song, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may, be, you may like to gamble and might like to dance, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now listen, if Christ has not set you free here this morning, you're not a devout follower of Christ through repentance and faith. The road of destruction will be the end, and that's when you will know. We don't want that for you. God does not want that for you. Because self 
self-worship, self-glory, being your own Lord and Savior is cosmic treason against the one who created you, who redeemed you, who wants to have a relationship with you. But sin has wreaked, wreaked habit in our lives and in our world and in our, in our souls that we would rather, as I said, worship created things rather than the creator God who is blessed over us. Amen. Romans chapter 1. But when Jesus sets us free, when Jesus sets us free, he sets us free from sin's dominance and sin's damnation. He goes on to say in John eight thirty six, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He frees us from the damnation of sin by becoming a curse for us, Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He died as our substitute on the cross, dying as the curse for us. And he frees us not only from the damnation of sin by dying on the cross, but he frees us from the domination of sin through repentance and faith. He gives us that new birth, John 3. He liberates us from our fallen nature, the flesh, the part of us that wants to do whatever we want to do. The corrupt and the rebellious me. Jesus sets us free from sin, from guilt, from damnation. When he was crucified on our behalf, we died on the cross. He was cursed on our behalf. He died as our atonement for our sins and our guilt. And he offers us his life as the just price for our sins so that we never have to fear God's wrath for ourselves. We just sang about it. It's been satisfied in Christ. And in the new birth, he gives us eyes to see, hearts to see, and to respond to the Savior, to desire him more than anything. Our sins are forgiven. The wrath has been taken away. We are set free from trying to live in a way that somehow earns our salvation, which we could never do. We are completely forgiven. Now in gratitude and thanksgiving, we serve and obey God. There's a big difference. And Keller says it often very well. Religion is I obey and God loves me. The gospel is God loves me and therefore I obey. There's a big difference between the two. Jesus gives us that new birth. And he even says in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, that he breaks the power not only of, of the dominance of sin in our lives, but the, 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 the work of the enemy against us. Look what Hebrews 2 says, that God gave us Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, the deliverer of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. His dominance over us, his dominion over us has been broken. That's freedom. Let me tell you, that's true and everlasting freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the enemy. And it happens at the cross. The empty tomb. The victory over the principalities of the earth. Charles Wesley knows his Bible. He recognized that our only hope for our salvation is Jesus the King, the Messiah. That his mission, his purpose of the first advent, he writes, he was born a child and yet a king, this, this child born in Nazareth, not impressive to anyone, was yet the king of his people. And he's the only place to find refuge, rest and redemption from our sins and our fears. And that's why he writes, let us find our rest in thee. Family, Jesus is offering that to you this morning. Free to love, free to serve, free to worship God because we are free from Damnation, condemnation in Christ. 
He's forgiven us all our sins. And that's why they added this other verse. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the gentleman added the last verse. Born to die for lowly sinners. Bruised to crush the serpent's curse. Talking about that hope from Genesis 3. Raised to life. Heal the nations. Raised to grant the Spirit's birth. That's the mission and deliverance of Christ. So you have the expectation and hope. The expectation, hope of the advent, the mission and deliverance of Christ, and finally, the consummation and eternity of the kingdom. I don't have the word kingdom up there. I think it's, it's uh, got to be stretched out on this uh, computer. Sorry about that. Okay. Of the kingdom. Once again, Wesley's music. Born to reign. Now, now listen to these words to see if you can pick up some, something that he's trying to get at from Scripture. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring, by thine own eternal spirit rule in our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, by your sufficient merit, Christ, raise us to thy glorious throne. Here's the reality of the human heart. The reality of every human heart is a day will come that everything broken will be fixed. A day when all injustices will be made right. And I want you to know that the longing of the human heart that wants to see this come to pass, this consummation, this completion, is something that God placed in you as part of the Imago Dei. It's part of the image and likeness that God created us in. Why? Because Ecclesiastes tells us God has put eternity into every human heart. All of us sense that there is something more. Something's not right here. We're in the world of time and yearn to be a part of something in eternity. All of us deep down desire to understand our place in the universe in the backdrop of eternity. God put that in our hearts. God put it in our hearts that we want to see the wrongs made right. That we want to see justice served. That is what God promised a full restoration, a full redemption and renewal when the kingdom comes. We saw it in Genesis 3, the promise of the Savior in the first advent. But notice something else going on here in these verses, in this stanza. And I'll look at Scripture in a minute. Look at the, the words king, reign, kingdom, throne. You know what Wesley's getting at? Wesley's getting at the biblical idea of the kingdom of God, which is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and grounded in the confidence of God's people that there is one eternal living God who revealed himself, who has a purpose for, a human, uh, for mankind and will come again. And this kingdom that God uh, uh, is speaking about goes way back again to Genesis 1 in the shalom, in the perfect innocence and beauty of God. Sin in this world, which we mentioned, and ever since that day, they're pointing not only to the coming of the Messiah, but to the coming of a greater kingdom where, 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 where righteousness and justice rule and reign. Not only did all the festivals of God's people, not only did uh, the, the, the celebrations of God's people point to the Messiah coming, but the prophets have come along and also speaking about this coming kingdom that will come. This, this reign and rule of a Messiah and all the hopes that they had, this, 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 this awareness uh, of what was going to come in the celebrations, in the festivals, and in the prophets, all pointed to this glorious day of the coming of the kingdom of God. 
The Jewish people were getting these promises over and over, these pictures in these prophecies. There will be a day when God will reign and rule again. And the power of God will come. And everything that they do, everything that they say in all their festivals are built upon that promise. In fact, in Malachi chapter 4, the end of the Old Testament, before the New Testament picks up, it's a chapter on the coming of the kingdom. The glorious day of God. In Jesus' ministry, while he was walking on this earth, we see that. The Pharisees come to Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah, and says to, to Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? In other words, when, when is the restoration of the fractured world, both the external and internal realities of people and the world itself, when is that coming? When is that going to be restored? When is, when is a good and just and holy and glorious and righteous king going to come and lead his people into a righteous kingdom? And Jesus tells them, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, in Luke chapter uh, 17, some of your translation says, for the kingdom of God is in you. That's a very poor translation. That's not what he means. He's not pointing to the Pharisees who want to crucify him and say the kingdom's within you. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom is in the midst of you. In other words, I'm here. The kingdom is here. I'm in the midst of you right now. The restoration of what was broken from Genesis 3 is here. The fulfillment to the promise of Abraham is here. The promise God made to David is here. The promise of all the nations and the blessing of a Savior is here. It's begun. Your king and your guide, the lover of your soul, is here. I've said this before. When you think of kingdom, when you think of the word kingdom, both the Old Testament Hebrew word and the New Testament Greek word, first thing you think about when you hear the word kingdom is not the kingdom itself, but the king. That's what the word means. It's the king. It's the reigning, ruling, sovereign God ruling over, secondarily, the realm in which he rules. It's the king. That's why Jesus, when he was baptized, we see in Mark chapter 1, and starts his public ministry, the first thing he preaches is what? The time is fulfilled, Old Testament expectation, anticipation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? I'm here. Repent and believe the gospel. The good news of the kingdom is the good news of the gospel. Is that Jesus is the true king. The kingdom has come. The true king is here. He has, he has inaugurated the kingdom. And everything then is promised with the coming king that everything broken will be fixed. Fear, suffering, tears will be gone. Joy will be eternally permanent. Poverty and injustice will be no more. Hunger, disease, death will be done away with. Wesley writes, born to reign in us forever. Now thy glorious, excuse me, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Come, Lord Jesus, by thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone. Jesus said in John chapter 14, teaching his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father who will give you another help. To be with you forever. The helper will come. He will be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you. And will be in you. The presence of the king. Through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. 
One of the promises that we are given in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only brings us into union with Christ, shows us the beauty and the glory of the gospel, and and brings us into union with Christ, but compels our desires and the ability to obey, to serve, and to love King Jesus. In fact, if you're here this morning and you don't have any inclination to know, to love, to obey, and to worship Jesus, you probably don't even know him. Now, don't misunderstand me. Those things do not earn your way into a relationship with God. We don't love and obey and worship in order to be right with God. They're the byproducts. They're the the result of the unmerited kindness and grace toward us in the gospel. When Jesus shows himself to us and we see we're a wicked sinner and he's a great savior and our sins are completely forgiven, we don't earn anything, we rest in his, his, his unfailing work on the cross, he places his Holy Spirit in us to worship and to love and to serve. And we've learned that. That's part, of the, that's part of the new covenant promise. Wesley writes, listen, I love this verse. By thine all-sufficient merit... Raise us to thy glorious throne. I think that's the pinnacle of the song. It points to the scripture, to the reality. It acknowledges that only Jesus' work on the cross, his perfection and perfect obedience can save us. That's it. Our merits cannot save us. Our works cannot save us. They only condemn us. But Christ's work, Christ's fulfillment of the law, Christ's perfect life, Christ's death on our behalf, fulfilling, fulfilling the penal sanction of the law, that's what saves us. That alone saves us. Lord, save us by thine own, by thine all-sufficient merit. It is your merit, not mine. It's your work, not mine. It's your perfect life, not mine. I'm, 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 I'm undone when I stand under the law. But now, Lord, you have fulfilled it for me. Second Corinthians, for our sake, he, that's the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, that's a sin offering, who knew no sin, perfect righteousness, So that in Christ, we, sinners, might become the righteousness of God. We might be in a right relationship with God. Family, this is what happened on the cross. God imputed our sins to Christ who knew no sin. And God imputed his righteousness, his perfect obedience to law, his all-sufficient merit to us who had no righteousness. No wonder the last... Part of uh, stanza three, I know written by someone else, is this. Come, come, thou shining righteous Savior, come make heaven anew. Come to claim your saints forever, evermore to live in you. Revelation tells us that the seventh angel will blow his trumpet. And with loud voices in heaven, the kingdom of God, the, the angels will be singing. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord And of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Family that's the Christmas story. That's the Christmas story. Coming of Christ. Invading and ruling in this world. The kingdom come in the inauguration of his first coming. And he is going to now promise as he has done in the past. Fulfilling that promise. He promises to come back. And put everything under his sovereign rule. All of creation will be experienced the shalom of God. That's our assured hope. So this Christmas season, as we sing this song, let's remember the expectation and hope of the first advent. The ancients anticipated for centuries has come. In the child born to Mary in the manger. 
the expectation hope. The mission of deliverance that God has promised that goes way back to Genesis 3 during a broken world as continued throughout the Old Testament history has been accomplished through the work of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb three days later. And finally, the consummation and eternal kingdom was inaugurated with Christ. His first appearance, but he promises he will establish his righteous and just rule over all the earth. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to read as the band comes up to lead us this morning in that song. And I hope it has new meaning for you as you contemplate the scripture. Come on up, band. Revelation chapter 21. I know we read it a little bit before. But let's stand together and let's hear the word of God. John writes, the apostle John writes, Revelation chapter 1. This is our hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Father, it is a, it is a privilege and an honor to look back centuries upon centuries to see your hand working in redemption. From way back in the beginning of creation, you have promised and you have kept your promise. And we've seen all the signs along the way, all the prophecies fulfilled along the way. We've seen all your work of grace and mercy and kindness all the way. None of those folks in the narratives deserve salvation There's only one perfect one, and his name is Jesus. Lord, thank you for keeping your promise. Thank you for sending your son, the hope and expectation of Israel. Thank you for his mission of delivering us from slavery to sin, forgiving us, and setting us free to serve, love, and worship you by grace through faith and the power of your spirit. And thank you that you will finish the work you started. The end will come. The consummation will come. The eternal kingdom will come. It is the fulfillment of your promises, and you are... Oh, God, have been so faithful that we trust you this morning. For what you have started, you will finish. The tomb is empty. Christ reigns and rules. Help us, Lord, we pray, this Advent season, to worship you in spirit and truth, to know your grace, to taste your mercy, Lord God, and to serve you with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving, without fear of condemnation, because we have been free to love and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this song.